Still annoyed by the Trump administration's relocation of two agriculture department bureaus, my next guest has introduced legislation to raise the bar for agency moves. It would require agencies to do some homework before they move. With more on his bill, Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen. Senator Van Hollen, good to have you on. Tom, it's great to be with you. And you had introduced this bill in the last Congress, and I noticed it gained one page. But thank you for only having a nine-page bill. Fairly simple, what you're calling for? Right, and I've teamed up with Representative Weston from Virginia once again on this common-sense legislation, which simply requires that federal agencies, before they undertake large moves, for example, one that took place during the Trump administration from the Washington, D.C. area to Kansas City, that before they undertake such a move, they do a cost-benefit analysis to determine whether it's in the best interests of the agency's mission and in the best interests of the taxpayer. So that's the idea. We would have hoped that agencies would do this as a matter of course. They don't. And so this would require them to do so before undertaking these kind of moves. And one detail in the bill is to involve the inspector general of the agency. In the case of agriculture, it would have been the agriculture IG. And what do they bring to it? Well, you want an independent look because if an agency is undertaking a move or planning a move, the assumption is that the political folks in the agency have made that determination. So we're looking for somebody who has an independent take, fresh look. Again, in order to protect the mission of the agency and the taxpayer. Back in 2019, what happened was the uh, Secretary of Agriculture decided to move two agencies within that department the Economic Research Service and the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, to move them to the Kansas City region from the Washington, D.C. area. It involved huge disruptions. They lost a lot of their expertise and knowledge, and a lot of employees didn't go. And as the GAO pointed out, they also lost some of the diversity of their workforce in that move. So the purpose of this legislation that Representative Wexton and I reintroduced is simply to require an independent cost-benefit analysis before agencies undertake these significant moves. And I think there was a third one, not from agriculture, that moved to Grand Junction, Colorado, too, at that time. That's right. The Bureau of Land Management moved their headquarters to Colorado, and the GAO, Government Accountability Office, looked at that as well and concluded that they did not conduct a full cost-benefit analysis before making that move. So, yes, this legislation would have applied to that move and any future move made by agencies. Again, I would think that every taxpayer would want an independent cost-benefit analysis done to make sure that these moves are in the interests of the country and in the interests of the taxpayer. Now, in recent memory, some agencies have moved nearby, like I remember EPA moved out of some of the worst buildings known to mankind in this hemisphere since torn down. That was a number of years ago. And now the FBI looks like it's finally going to get up and move to either Virginia or you're hoping to Prince George's County, Maryland. Would those be covered by this legislation, that type of move? Well, in these cases, there's a big analysis undertaken in terms of the mission of the FBI, for example, and and cost to taxpayers. I mean, in Maryland, we are asking the GSA to make sure that they value a number of criteria equally and that they make sure that cost to taxpayer is a significant 
part of that because we demonstrated that moving the FBI to Virginia would cost a minimum of $1 billion more to the federal taxpayer than moving to either of the Maryland sites. But, you know, clearly a move of an agency within a particular region, in this case within the Washington metropolitan region, does not cause the kind of disruption to workforce that a move from the D.C. region to Kansas City entails. We're speaking with Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen, and the bill regarding the relocation requirements for federal agencies did not get through the busy schedule of the 117th. Now we're in the divided 118th. Do you have any Republican co-sponsors that you're aware of either in the House or anybody joining you in the Senate? We do not yet have Republican co-sponsors. We're going to work to accomplish that. I would hope that anybody, regardless of party, would want to look before they leap, especially when you're dealing with taxpayer dollars, that they'd want to make sure agencies are making an assessment about whether a planned move will be consistent with their mission, not cause disruptions to the mission, and be in the interest of taxpayers. So you would hope that that would be a nonpartisan objective, and we're going to be working toward that. I was going to say, if the Trump administration moves were for political purposes, I'm not sure what they would have been, given the small amount of people being moved, but nevertheless, then I would think both parties would want to keep the other one from doing that, depending on who's in the White House. Well, that's right. I think members of Congress, regardless of party, should want to ensure that when federal agencies are making major moves, that they're doing so in a way that's in the best interests of the mission of the agency, as well as the taxpayer. And that should be true regardless of whether um, a Democratic president is in the White House or a Republican president is in the White House. And just switching gears here for a minute while we have you, I wanted to ask you about the federal return to the office, which seems to be an agency-by-agency decision at this point. There's pressure from the District of Columbia. They want some certainty of what type of office occupancy is going to look like, so maybe some federal space can be repurposed or you know, given back, unleashed. What's your sense of where this is all going to head? Because it seems to be stasis at this point. Well, I do think agencies need to take a very close look at this question because President Biden will soon declare an end to the pandemic emergency. So people should be making sure that they're accomplishing the goals of their agencies. That means that if an agency says that it needs its people back in the office, that should be the case. On the other hand, we learned that there can be some flexibility in the workforce, the telework can have advantages both in terms of the agency as well as the employee. So this is a moment to sort of look and determine based on the agency's needs and mission, you know, to what extent can they have some greater flexibility than they did pre-pandemic. But the key is to make sure that the policies accomplish the mission of an agency. If people need to be at work in person to accomplish that goal, then We need to make sure people are back in person to the extent they can achieve the mission with some job flexibility, then people should have that accommodation so long as it's consistent with the mission. So this is a time when I think different agencies are making those determinations. Yeah, because I said District of Columbia, but even if you look at your own state of Maryland, there's a kind of a belt of federal large degree of employment stretching from Bethesda to Baltimore, really. And a lot of that is in federally owned facilities, but a lot of that is lease space, too. 
Well, that's right. Again, the primary objective here should be to meet the missions of the federal agencies. And so this will require, I think, a really good close look because we can't just continue on with, you know, business as usual as it was, I shouldn't say as usual as it was during the pandemic. On the other hand, I think the pandemic taught us some lessons about our ability to have some more workplace flexibility. So figuring out exactly what the sweet spot is, is something every agency needs to do. So you would say then that should be up to agency by agency, and we don't need a grand pronouncement, say, from the Office of Personnel Management? Well, I think the Office of Personnel Management needs to be clear that agencies need to adopt policies that maximize the success of their mission. And look, we're going to be keeping a very close look on this, meeting the members of Congress. I chair a appropriations subcommittee that oversees a lot of federal agencies. Others oversee other agencies. So I do think we need a coherent policy, but not every agency of government depends on the same workforce requirements in terms of being there in person full time. But again, I think that this is something that we should at least have an articulated policy that governs the actions of every agency. That doesn't mean every agency has the exact same policy, but we do need some overall guidance. All right. And then also, there's a lot of proposals going around now for the federal pay raise. There's the FAIR Act, which I think does have bipartisan support in both houses. Not sure how extensive that is for the 87 And then there's the Biden administration 5.2 proposal. What's your expectation of where this is going to come out, do you think, for federal employees? Well, I'm a supporter of the FAIR Act. I think that it's really important that federal employees are paid at their full value, and that would mean the greater amount. At the same time, I think that the increase that President Biden and the Biden administration have put forward, 5.2 percent, is a really important step in the right direction. So we'll be working to try to bump that up. But the way it works is that unless Congress substitutes its judgment on the pay increase, the president's proposal will prevail. And I think that in this case, Republicans in the Congress are going to be very reluctant and resistant to increasing it above 5.2 percent. We're going to work to encourage them to do that. Uh, But at least this is a very respectable place to be, this meaning what what President Biden has proposed. And 5.2 percent across the board is better than 4.7 for base and 4. whatever it was, half for base salary, half for locality pay. The net is greater with 5.2 across the board than 8.7 divided in half. Right. So again, what the president's put forward, I think, is a very respectable proposal. And I will oppose any effort by Republicans in Congress to roll that back as we move through the process. Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen, thanks so much. Good to be with you. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about the legislation at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. 
Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about 
positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if 
I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.